Well, Happy New Year and Snovim Godom. In this start of the year, rather short podcast, what I want to do is look at what 2022 may presage for certain particular figures within the Russian government. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. It's always a mistake to let the start of a new year lull you into the rather hubristic notion that you can somehow meaningfully make some kind of predictions. I mean, on the one hand, look, it's actually a very safe thing to do, because in practice, if you're right, then you will go back and use that as an opportunity to tout just how prescient you were. And if you're wrong, odds are people won't remember. But nonetheless, it's a particularly at the moment, a particularly foolish act, because we are in a very much uncharted territory, particularly relating, obviously, to what what is going to happen on the Ukrainian border. So instead, I thought as a way of being able to say something a little bit useful, I hope, about the coming year, I wanted to focus on some of the big beasts within the system and just give a sense of what I think they will be looking to. And obviously, if we're talking about big beasts, we have to start with the, the biggest beast of all, Vladimir Vladimirovich himself. And here, I mean, I think that actually the year is going to be shaped relatively soon in that he has one, after all, absolutely crucial and pretty fundamental decision to make, which is about Ukraine. It is about also a lot more than that. Really, it's a fundamental one as to whether or not, as we look towards 2024 and the presidential election and the whole question about the, the future of his whole regime, it's whether or not he is going to as seemed to be implied certainly in the immediate aftermath of the September Duma elections, with a primarily social path, in other words, addressing bread and butter questions of very, very real uh, concern to the Russian people. I mean, it's quite interesting. It's something I, I tweeted out, and I'll also leave a link in the programme notes. But there was a, a survey that the polling agency Vutsiom uh, carried out, which was basically asking people about their their hopes and fears for the coming year. And what really came out was the extent to which the people were not thinking or talking about war. I, off the top of my head, I think it was 7%, it could have been 9%, actually said that they thought war was a possibility. Um, 4% actually thought that there would be peace on earth, which goes to show the limits of any polling. Um, But the overwhelming majority of people's concerns were about inflation, were about issues relating to standards of living. So I think, you know, it's whether or not he addresses this or whether or not he goes for a nationalist, full-on fortress mode. Now, One could say, well, why can't he do both? But the honest answer is that if we see a dramatic escalation in Ukraine, then almost certainly there will be massive sanctions, which will absolutely not break the system, but will, of course, have all kinds of knock-on pressures, especially in the short to medium term. 
And we know from experience that those pressures are primarily going to be borne by ordinary Russians. So the, the, the scope for sort of demonstrating that he can seriously address the kind of the real concerns of Russians will probably be swept away. But as I said, I think this is what's interesting, because on the one hand, you see the drumbeat of war on the Ukrainian border. But on the other hand, there continue to be really strong signs that that is not actually his chosen mode of, shall I say, regime legitimation. The extremely good Russian online research outlet called Riddle, and as usual, I'll leave a link in the show notes, asked a whole series of their commentators for what they thought the key event of 2021 was. And a lot of it was, you know, perfectly legitimately things like the jailing of Navalny and so forth. Alessia Zakharova, though, I mean, what she raised, which I thought was really very, very thought-provoking, was actually the social turn in Putin's rhetoric. The extent to which he has moved into talking in much more, I wouldn't say folksy, but certainly much more human-centric terms. I mean, and and the the ones that she brought up and and demonstrated how much more commonly they'll be used in his statements, you know, words like family and mother and that kind of thing. Whereas once upon a time, he spoke in much, much more impersonal and frankly bureaucratic terms about, for example, citizens with children. And this also came out in his New Year's Eve address of, of yesterday evening, which you know, was, was, was painfully conventional, as most of these things are. But again, it, it focused primarily on the sense of trying to connect with the Russians as people, rather than as citizens of a great power. I mean, yes, of course, there, there was a little genuflection to, to the latter, but primarily it was about that. It was about you know losses we've taken from COVID, and, and also a great emphasis on addressing the, 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 sort of the grand strategic projects, of which more in a moment, which are precisely geared at improving ordinary people's quality of life. So for me, the implication is, although God only knows what's going to happen with Ukraine and the wider security-oriented confrontation with the West, but it, it does imply that at the very least one can say that this is still an ongoing political battle whether it's between people in Putin's circle, whether it's within Putin himself. You know, does he want to be the warlord or the father of the nation? I think this is, this is really going to be the interesting one that is going to be played out in this coming year. And as I say, a key issue, though not the only issue, will be precisely what happens over the current Ukrainian confrontation. And if we're talking about that, then it seems to be a suitable juncture to move on to Nikolai Patrushev, the Secretary of the Security Council, and the Hawks Hawk. And again, I think in many ways, I suspect that this year we'll see him continuing to push the nationalist, the fortress model of managing the country legitimation, and of course, of asserting Russia's great power status internationally. Now, there's a danger here. It's easy to turn him into, and I feel I sometimes do, but to turn him into some kind of pantomime villain. That would be, though, to overstate his actual role. He is not the one key figure. He is a very powerful member of the camp who really are kind of pushing this kind of approach. But he's in much as anything else. They're their avatar and their spokesman. 
rather than anything else. He represents, and his power is not just his relationship with Putin, his power is precisely because he represents a particular and very powerful strand of opinion. And we shouldn't assume that that is an entirely malign thing. I mean, it's quite interesting, for example, the extent to which he seems to have been lined up as part of a good cop, bad cop team with Yuri Ushakov, the presidential foreign policy advisor, in conversations with the United States. And it's interesting that, that Jake Sullivan from Washington has been, has anyway moved from being primarily talking to, to Patrushev to now primarily talking to Ushakov. And that's seen as a sort of a, a good thing. Now, again, I think to an extent, it's precisely because Patrushev set up the situation so almost exaggeratedly hawkish that Ushakov could come along and say almost anything, and he seems much more reasonable and rational. So, you know, in, again, so as not to overplay the Patrushev as villain, in part, his villainy is precisely harnessed, maybe even staged, to have some kind of particular policy value. But as I say, I think what we're going to see is, is Patrushev continuing to be largely behind the scenes, because he's not an especially public personality. But over this coming year, will continue to be one of the key advocates of an essentially much more forceful approach. And the irony is, in the process, and I'm, you know, he's, he's loyal to Putin, he's loyal to Russia, in his own mind at least. One could argue, though, that what he's actually going to do, though, is in practice to be pushing a, a legitimating strategy which will prove to be thoroughly counterproductive. The big fear, as, as I see it, within the Kremlin is that in order to win 2024, they have to rig the results so egregiously that they run the risk of a Belarus-style popular backlash, which, of course, they will, they will assume has been whipped up, stirred by and amplified by the West. Actually, the kind of moves that Patrushev would advocate would probably make that more likely. And although one could posit a kind of Machiavellian scenario where he wants that, almost like the, the Red Brigade's fascistification model back in 70s and 80s Italy, where they knew that they couldn't win over the masses, so what they wanted to do was push the regime into being so draconian in its anti-terrorist actions that in some ways it, it, it forced radicalization upon the masses. Well, so, so too, okay, perhaps a slightly obscure metaphor, I apologise, but so too, you know, it is possible that Patrushev in some ways would want to see some kind of popular backlash because then you can actually have a proper proper police state brought into, into place. I don't think so. I don't think he's thinking in those terms. But nonetheless, that may well be the outcome. So I think this is, this is going to be, I think, Patrushev's 2022. He is going to be, and you, you could regard it as, as a devil or a slightly different angel, but anyway, he will be a figure that is sitting on one of Putin's shoulders, whispering a rather radical, hardline geopolitical agenda, and thus also domestic political agenda, into his ear. There aren't, though, unfortunately, any that we would, anybody we would really consider to be doves within this system. But in some ways, maybe the closest we could get would be Prime Minister Mishustin. Now, obviously, you know, if, if, if there is a massive escalation in uh, Ukraine, then in some ways all bets are off. But let's, let's assume not. The interesting thing is Mishustin, I mean, he does seem content with what to me looks like a phenomenally tedious political agenda that is his responsibility. You know, if you look at the 
the regular bulletins of the meetings he has, uh, the, the cabinet sessions he chairs and so forth, the general accounts of his, of his activities, they really are focusing on the, the tedious but, of course, absolutely invaluable day-to-day management of the country. And he seems to be perfectly comfortable with that. Um, again, I'm sure this is a man with ambitions, but nonetheless, for the moment, he, he's fine with that. And again, I think what we're going to see is, first of all, in this coming year, him seeing how he can develop this kind of techno-authoritarian perspective he has on how Russia can be managed. Uh, An attempt to automate, an attempt to have data-driven policy, an attempt to, in effect, use technology as a way of getting around the very, very obvious human fallibilities and frailties within the, the Russian system. And this is both as a means, generally speaking, to effective governance of Russia. And look, let's be honest, good luck to him. A lot of people have tried that. Hasn't proven to be so easy in the past. And therefore also as a way of swinging 2024 through the means of either delivery on the issues that really matter to Russians, or at least giving the impression that delivery is on its way. And in this respect, he represents a most unlikely grey-suited Santa Claus figure. If one looks, for example, at the uh, minutes of his meeting on the 22nd of December with the government expert committee, or representatives of them, he said, I mean, it's very straightforward, our main goal is drastically to improve living standards. That's how he's actually framing his, his key function. It's not about Russia as a great power. It's not about projecting influence around the world or whatever. It's about, again, bread and butter issues. And to this end, he does have a lot of resources to, to throw at the challenges. In the 2022 budget, for example, 2.4 trillion rubles, which is more than $32 billion or 27.3 or so billion pounds, but clearly in Russian terms, actually, that buys you rather more than a, a, a direct currency exchange um, conversion would suggest. Anyway, that's, that's his budget for the sort of grand national projects alone. And given that you know, both inflation and COVID are likely, and this is a, a general consensus even with the World Bank, you know, are likely to begin to come under control through the course of the year. You know, that alone gives him a lot of money to throw at the problem. Obviously, it depends how much is, is going to be wasted. So that's very much what it's going to be. It's, be. it's going to be a year spent developing the instruments for managing the country, trying to centralise them as far as possible in a belief that the right kind of centralisation can also breed efficiency. And then using that as a way of starting out on trying to address key standard of living issues, or at least, as I said, starting the projects which are going to convey that impression. And on on that point, for example, you know, he talked a lot uh, recently about the importance of the development of infrastructure, which really does matter, and particularly the railways. From this year, for example, there's one trillion rubles that annually are going to be spent on big railway development projects. And we're particularly looking at the Baikal Amur Magistral, which parallels to another one of the railways that's being targeted for investment, the Trans-Siberian, and also the new North Latitudinal Railway, which runs across over 700 kilometres of Russia's northern, almost coastline, linking Vorkuta to, well, being close to, Narilsk. Siberia is pretty central to a lot of these infrastructural development plans, especially the grand ones. 
And that brings me neatly to the next figure I want to talk about after the break, Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, Sergei Shoigu, I will be honest, I was rather disappointed when he came forward with these rather ridiculous claims that... American mercenaries were involved in the Donbass on a large scale, and in particular, that a chemical weapons attack was being prepared. Now, look, I appreciate that essentially there he was channeling Colin Powell and that rather ridiculous and equally disastrous claim about weapons of mass destruction that uh, Saddam Hussein had at his disposal as part of trying to pave the way for the invasion of Iraq. And so in some ways this was geopolitical trolling as usual. But I was, I will confess, still saddened. Come on, Sergei Kuzhugetovich, you're better than that. But the interesting thing is that if we look at what 2022 may offer Shoigu, he actually could follow either the fortress or the social tracks of future development. You know, if, if one looks at the fortress approach... In many ways, he is really considered to be the man who has created the forces that allow Russia to throw its weight around the way it is now. Now, in some ways, that's a little bit unfair. Well, actually, no, it's, it's quite considerably unfair. On his predecessor, Defence Minister Serdyukov, and Serdyukov's Chief of the General Staff, Makarov, who were really the, the prime movers behind the reforms that have created the, sort of the, the, the modern Russian armed forces, but still, hey, who said politics ever had to be fair? And so, you know, if one looks at a force that is able to maintain this really very effective intervention in Syria and, if not quite win the war, but come pretty close to it, and also the sort of force that can be mustered such might around the Ukrainian border that it is, this is how the Kremlin sees it, forcing the United States, NATO and the West generally into talks I mean, this is very much regarded as Shoigu's strength. And therefore, you know, if we do find the, the, the fortress approach developing, whether or not Shoigu re remains in office, we don't know, and I'll come to that in a moment. But either way, I mean, he is quite well placed. No one is going to question his patriotic slash nationalist credentials, for example. And, you know, there is always going to be room for him in the, the inner circles of the boss. Perhaps more interesting, though, is the thought about what he could do if he transitions particularly out of his defence ministry job, because there is talk of, of some kind of a move. And what happens is if the, the decision is really made by the boss precisely to go for this social mode of legitimation. The talk, after all, has been that a potential role for Forbes Shoigu would be as presidential plenipotentiary to the Siberian Federal District, which is actually where the railways come in. This would look, and indeed in technical terms, would be a demotion from his current position. But I think the idea is to combine the position with a massive sort of development task and a budget to match. 
and that would allow Shoigu, who after all is a Sibiriak, and who has spoken about his desire to, to basically see a massive uplift of Siberia, the building of new cities and, and such like, you know, it would allow him in effect to become something rather bigger than just simply a presidential representative, in effect the, the viceroy of, of Siberia. And given that Shoigu's strengths include both fixing dysfunctional institutions, I mean, certainly the Ministry of Emergency Situations was that, and even one could argue that the Ministry of Defence was also that when he came into the position, given the extent to which there was almost still open war between the the uniformed and the civilian um, leaderships. It would be interesting to see how he would bring this particular skill set to bear on Siberia and his relationships with all the various governors and things. He's also quite good at creating teams, which, you know, again, could stand him in good stead. But beyond that, Shoigu has also demonstrated considerable brilliance, I would say, in projecting an image and building a narrative. I mean, again, if one looks at how he has handled his role within the defense ministry, I mean, that is actually very, very clear. So, Put together, you know, again, it would have to be a suitably stonking budget, a role with a clear mandate to go beyond the usual presidential plenipotentiary, and his own capacity to, to build teams, build really consensuses, and do something with them. This could really be quite an interesting and, and powerful move. Because, look, it's not that, I mean, well, it's questionable whether he could succeed at all. And certainly it's not that there will be any significant results within the next few years. But on the other hand, he would be definitely the sort of man to create this, this narrative of a new heroic project. Going back to, I mean, you know, one can think of, for example, the so-called Virgin Land Scheme. That was a central element to Khrushchev's rise to power. In economic and agrarian terms, it ended up being a complete and disastrous waste of money. But at that crucial political moment, when when Khrushchev was trying to differentiate himself as as a political candidate, and in effect offer what seemed to be uh, basically a free lunch for the Soviet system, that there was all these new areas that could could suddenly be brought under the plough and everything would be great, well, you know, that, that can sometimes have a particular power, not necessarily for Shoigu's own elevation, but for the system's legitimation. So a big project can be very, very powerful as a mobilising force, including for people who have absolutely nothing to do with it, but who just simply want to sit back and just feel that they are part of something greater. And in the process, it, it turns the nature of the current regime around. At the moment, after all, I think it is fair to say that this is seen to be a government of shabby grey figures doing shabby grey things, which is indeed probably accurate much of the time. This gives them a chance to once again become heroes, but heroes on the domestic front, not just simply suppressing teenage demonstrators or moving huge amounts of money into their own pockets. I mean, there was a fascinating, if really depressing, analysis that suggested that basically, if you want to get a government contract, you're going to have to write off 40% of the value towards sweeteners, bribes and the like. So, you know, beyond moving beyond that kind of reality and creating this sense that something big is being done. So that that could well be Shoigu's sort of project. I, I mean, I, I have no idea. It would take a certain amount of courage and a certain amount of imagination. And I'm not convinced that the current Kremlin has much of either. But that's one of the possible developments we could see that I think is worth looking out for.
And now just briefly, let me touch on a couple of Ks, probably about as far removed in terms of nature, character and interests as one could imagine. The first one being Kirienka, the deputy head of the presidential administration in charge of politics, which in some ways, I don't know if it makes him more of a theatrical impresario or what. Um, but anyway, he, I think we're going to see him emerging much more this year in terms of playing with the party system. And interestingly enough, although this is not a man who naturally allies closely with, with the Siloviki, the, the security block, what we've already seen with the way that they're being deployed against the Communist Party suggests that at the very least there is some kind of alliance of convenience between the two. So I think we're going to see Kirienko clipping the wings of the Communist Party at the very least, quite possibly bringing up a new head to replace Zyuganov, but also seeing what he can do with the, the, the new new people party. Um, and generally, I think he, th th there's going to be this attempt to try and see how they can begin to start creating a credible set of alternative figures for 2024. Now, again, I'm not expecting us to have any sense of who the candidates are until rather closer to, to the elections. But given that these are not just individuals, these are individuals who have to represent some kind of a political movement, I think they're going to be much, much more careful. Again, I think they were, they were bitten quite badly when Grudinin, for the Communist Party, in the previous presidential elections, who was meant to be a rather bland and unappealing candidate actually proved to be much more expect, uh, effective than expected. So I think, again, they're, they're going to try and make sure that they do their homework this time. And so this is going to be Kirienko's thing. Again, in some ways, much like Mishustin, it's going to be a year of preparation rather than, I think, a year of dramatic action. But nonetheless, I think that's what we're going to see. We're, we're going to start seeing the contours of his 2024 campaign plans. From one K, as I say, to another, Ramzan Kadyrov, the, uh, I don't know what you want to call him, warlord, satrap, whatever, of, of Chechnya. I, I noted that uh, the uh, human rights ombudsman for the region has uh, just uh, characterised him as a distinguished human rights defender, which demonstrates that uh, surrealism is still clearly alive and well in the North Caucasus. Mainly of late, though, he's actually been noteworthy for some of his interventions on the international scene, um, issuing ultimata to the Turkish government because of a park being named after Zhoka Dudayev, the first head of uh, independent Chechnya, uh, and more sort of powerfully perhaps on Ukraine, particularly claiming that if Ukrainian President Zelensky does not change his policies, then uh, Ukraine should be annexed, in his view. And he's perfectly willing to do it if, if Moscow gives him the nod. Indeed, the, the, the little rascal said that uh, the Ukraine issue is not even on the level of President Putin. It's at my level. And then later he said, as I said after Crimea, we have to take Kiev. This is all very, very provocative stuff. But what's interesting is actually how little attention or outrage it has generated inside or indeed outside Russia. And I think in part it's because I think people recognise that this is Kadyrov being Kadyrov in the sense of trying desperately to piggyback on, on the issue of the moment and to signal his extravagant loyalty to Putin 
not necessarily because he is extravagantly loyal to Putin, but because in some ways this is part of his bargaining process to ensure that the federal subsidies continue to flow Chechnya's way and that he continues to be given a free hand to do whatever he wants at home. But it also, I think, represents uh, an extent to which, in some ways, we've reached the, well, Kadyrov is who Kadyrov is, kind of, of level. We just expect him to say and do barking mad things. And we might find it horrifying, we might find it entertaining, but we don't necessarily find it meaningful. And so, well, in that respect, what do I imagine we're going to see in, in, in the coming year from, from Kadyrov? Well, I mean, obviously within Chechnya, just continuing to maintain his power and the, the power of his immediate circle and continue to rake off huge amounts of foreign, of sorry, federal subsidies. Well, actually, come to think of it, foreign subsidies, I mean, Chechnya is in many ways really an independent country that Moscow has to bankroll. So maybe I was right the first time. But anyway, continuing to sort of soak off a lot of that, continuing to spend money on prestige projects, but also continuing to try and do two things at once, throw his weight around in the North Caucasus. And I think we might see some renewed attempt to either push the notion that Chechnya ought to be in some ways the kind of the, the dominant power of the North Caucasus, or actually very, very specific territorial um, and, and political and economic claims. You know, I, think, I think he probably thinks this is the window of opportunity. You can't do anything like this too close to the presidential election. And you couldn't do it in the run-up to the Duma elections. So again, he's got about a year, a year and a half to be particularly inconvenient. See what kind of sweeteners he can get from Moscow just to keep him quiet before that becomes regarded as a little bit too problematic, a little bit too almost uh, disloyal to, to Putin. So I think he's going to be doing that, while at the same time, really in a, in a sort of direct proportion, asserting just how astonishingly loyal he is to the Russian Federation, but above all to Putin himself. So that's my just very quick um, start of the year, quick run through as to what 2022 might, in my opinion, offer to some of the individuals concerned. Just a, a couple of very minor sort of points. I'm thinking of a slight sort of refreshing of the format, maybe the music and so forth. So any comments that, that listeners may have on that, very welcome. Also, I'm going to be starting a short and episodic series of interviews with up-and-coming Russia scholars and watchers, or people who just simply are not quite as well-known or appreciated, shall we say, as they ought to be, in my opinion. So again, if, if people have particular suggestions as to anyone within the sort of the wider Russia watching community, again, particularly people who don't generally have other platforms, then any suggestions would obviously be appreciated. But let me end with that and wish you all the very best for 2022. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.
И только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.